Welcome everyone to this episode of the MBE Enterprise Podcast, where we talk about money, business, and entrepreneurship with some of the brightest minds I know. Today, I am joined by Tyler Borima, founder of Atlanta Sneaks. Tyler, how are we doing this morning, man? No complaints over here. Having a good day. Ready to get started. Glad to hear that, man. I'm glad to hear that. I want to start right away, Tyler, with you mentioned you started this this um, sneaker company in middle school. Is that correct? Kind of take me back to the origins of it. Um, I think a lot of people when they're in middle school like that, they maybe have these business ideas that they, they think they want to work towards, right? They maybe start them up and then they find out kind of how much work it is and, and they don't really follow through, right? Take me back to kind of how it began and then how you were able to continually follow through with it, stick with it up until this point where you are a senior at the university of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I switched middle schools from, I was in public school and I switched to private school in middle school and going into it just didn't have a whole friend base or anything, of course, and started to find my people. And the people that I, I started hanging out with were huge into shoes and I was not at all. So I definitely got influenced by them up on the front end and, um, they were all collecting these different pairs. So to keep up with them and everything, I found a way to buy my first pair, went to the mall and got them after working for a couple months for like getting allowance, things like that. Ended up buying that pair and everything was good. But like as a sixth grader grew out of them in like two months and then looked at the market, wanted to just sell them to a buddy, realized they were actually worth more pre-owned than I had bought them brand new. Ended up finding a way to sell them online um, for over, I think it was like, I paid 130 and sold it for like over 200 after I had beaten them to the ground. I was like, that doesn't even make sense. So I was out to go buy more shoes. And it eventually became something where all of us, me and a couple others found ways to purchase and sell shoes very lightly to keep our collections moving and have different pairs to wear every other week, go to little trade shows and things like that. And as time continued, I saw it as more and more of an opportunity and kind of that started the entrepreneurship thought in my head, whereas others were kind of continuing with just collecting. I saw it as a opportunity to kind of grow it into something else and people around me kind of did the same thing for quite some time, but I was just the one that stuck with it the longest. And now we're here and I'm still doing it almost a decade later, which is crazy to say. Tyler, can you speak to just the importance that you just brought up there of like the persistence of it, right? And staying consistent. You mentioned other people did it and you're just the only one who stuck with it to this point. Mm -hmm. Um, can you just speak to kind of the value that that has to kind of where you're at now and how much of a role that persistency aspect played in that? Yeah, I think it's a huge piece. As I see every business opportunity that I've pursued, it's the persistence that builds the exponential results. Each and every year, you can get two or three compounded upon yourself of, of what you're able to get done and what you're able to outsource as well. So being able to understand that the longer you can last, not even if it's a growth mindset, but as long as you can stay in something longer than most people can, you have that much more percentage ability to win in something or become the greatest in, in your space. So I've gone through many cycles of people around me here in 
middle school, high school, and college, I've met people that do the same thing as me, but fade out and then end up going into something else. And I don't take it as a competitive thing, but I see like the more and more people that are just not able to stay within one thing and stay focused. It just, I know I'm, I'm gaining that advantage each and every year I continue in, in one space. Was that competition aspect you brought up, um, was that something that worried you or I, I think a lot of new young entrepreneurs, um, speaking as a new young entrepreneur, you know, in a sense, um, I think a lot of them, they always want to create this elaborate new thing, kind of almost reinvent the wheel in a way, right? As opposed to jumping on top of business models that are already proven and already work. Like everyone wants to create this incredible new innovative something. And, you know, if you're an, an extremely brilliant engineer, right? Or inventor, like that, I'm not saying that can't work, but the concept of like, you know, buying shoes and then reselling them for a profit, right? It's not like this, it, this doesn't mean it's easy, but it's not like this extremely, extremely elaborate thing, at least from my point of view, um, mm -hmm. totally correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> the idea that was that competition aspect, the idea that kind of anyone or these junior high kids, they were trying to get into it. These other high schoolers, college kids trying to get into it. Was that ever something that worried you, bothered you, or did you just know that like, I'm just going to, I'm already ahead of them and I'm just going to stay dominant and stay ahead of them? That's a good question. I was in high school, like, obviously, I wasn't as mature as I am now. But I was always worried, like, if I'm not making this deal, somebody else is and it was a competition, which made me better. But at the same time, it was taking up too much of my headspace to a point where I was focusing on that instead of just focusing on offering my customers the best product possible. And that's something that shifted a mindset uh, over the last couple of years, I've just realized like the the mindset behind understanding that there's pretty much an infinite amount of customers out there. And instead of trying to focus on the things you don't have, build upon the things that you do. So as I've continued to do that and leaned in on the customer base that I already have, you, you end up gaining more of a customer base because of it. So I just know that it's, it's infinite out there. There's, there's so many people out there that are looking to purchase things just like this. And it shouldn't, affect you if other people are doing better or worse it's it should only inspire you and and help you learn something of like what are they doing right what can i change that abundance mindset is is something that i talked about actually on the last episode well they talked about it the guests on the last um episode and it's something that it speaks so true right there's enough money there's enough in their case real estate deals there in your case shoes buyers right sellers there's there's enough of them in the world for more than just one person to be successful at it, right? I think people have to really understand that, that they can dominate their, first, you got to dominate your local, local space, you know, and what exactly what you're doing. Then you dominate it on a, on a citywide level, maybe then, then a region level, then may, then maybe you can expand a little bit or you're trying to dominate on a national scale, right? You, you got to work your way up. Can't skip those steps. Um, as I always like to mention of like, just jumping Tyler, how, how about the business model? So right away, you talked about at the beginning, it was, it very primitively started when you just bought a pair of shoes, wore them for a while, and then went to sell them and realized they were worth more. You're like, what, how, how does this happen? And that's kind of a fair question. Like, how, how does that happen? Do you still, how has the business model shifted? Do you still buy them and wear them for a couple of weeks and sell them? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming maybe not, but I could be wrong there. Or is it just full on 
buying and reselling? Um, how, how exactly? Take me through kind of the current business model of Atlanta Sneaks. So right now, it's not anything related to me buying stuff to wear anymore. It's solely based off finding profit in things. The ideal business model that I'm running now is finding pre-owned and brand new collections from people within the Southeast and across the U.S., but I prefer to meet them in person. And I offer the service of I'll buy anything you have as long as I can get it all. And now I also do individual purchases, but I prefer bulk because obviously you can get a better deal if you're providing them with let me take everything at once and help you out. So I do that. Um, I make sure I try and buy at least 500 pairs a month. And from there, I post individually on three or four different platforms, one being eBay. That's my largest revenue right now. And then my Instagram page, I get a lot of leads through there on buying and selling and a couple other light platforms, StockX, Goat, and things like that, where I aim for a $50 uh, margin or $50 profit per unit or 25 to 30%. But ideally, I'm, I'm sitting at like a 45% margin overall for the year. Yeah, those are, uh, those are excellent numbers, excellent numbers there. And, and kind of tying into that, previously what you said that finding the deals client acquisition and, and customer acquisition i guess mm -hmm. um how how would you kind of go about navigate that process of you know onboarding a customer building a relationship with them do you have a lot of repeat um, suppliers to you and, and buyers as well uh, is that something that's pretty important for the space you're in right now um take me through a little bit of that that uh, finding deals and then and then also i guess obviously selling them as well yeah, I'll start with the, the finding deals aspect of it. It's actually something I've been working on over the last couple of months. Before it was me just always being asking everybody, hey, do you have shoes for sale? And just kind of scraping by seeing as many pairs as I could find. But now I've uh, I've utilized uh, one one aspect for me is Facebook. So I've gotten in some some pretty prominent groups in the area with 40, 50,000 members. And I have created a identity for myself as the guy that buys everything. So now I have almost an unlimited amount of leads because everybody sees my face. I make sure to put my face out there as much as I can showing like, here, here's me. I just bought 200 pairs, 300 pairs. And now I'm even seeing the reaping the benefits of it because I see as people post in there, when they have pairs for sale, everybody's just commenting my name, like this guy will buy it, this guy will buy it. So I'm getting leads without even having to put myself out there because I built up that reputation on the front end. So that's always something that I consider to be a big asset to the business is being able to put yourself out there, like the personal brand of like who you are, what you're doing, just so that people know like, yeah, this is the guy that could buy my whole collection if I wanted to, because that's ideally what I'm, I'm out here to provide this service for. And then on the selling side, I realized that obviously I'm selling a product that's not my own. It's Jordan's, Nike's, Yeezy's, things like that. And obviously as well, I'm not the only one that's selling these. So I have to find a way to become different in a space where I'm selling the same product as a lot of different people. So what that looks like for me is just taking the extra two cent step of maybe adding a flyer in or doing extra fast shipping, things like that. Because in this space, the, the customer retention is really low because when people are looking for a product that's out there in abundance, they're most likely just going to go for what's the cheapest and the, like in the right condition for them. 
So if you can provide them with some type of service that they would want to come back to, they'd be willing to pay even a premium just to work with you again. So that's something that I'm not 100% optimized for yet, but I'm continuing to figure out just little wins here and there that I can uh, take advantage of and continue on in the future. Flipping back to the the buying and the finding deals ends of things. When you're going after those collections, obviously, right, you're you're getting them in bulk and then mm -hmm. able to you know, sell them individually for a higher, you, you get a better deal when you get them in bulk. I think that most people should understand that aspect of it. Are you getting things within that, that you're like, I, I won't sell this. Like this, this is kind of useless. Like this one piece or this one unit, you're like, I'm getting, you know, however many of them. And, and this one is, is absolutely garbage, but I'm, I'm doing it for these other ones. Or are you trying to resell? I mean, obviously you're trying to resell everything, but are, do you go into it sometimes with that that uh, knowledge that you now have in this space of like, ah, this this one probably won't sell very well? Yeah, I've seen the same shoe over 500,000 times on some of the popular models. So I pretty much have a, a general idea of like ideal situation, what I want to pay off the top, and then the most I would, I would be willing to pay to still make my margin. Um, so I go into it knowing that what I need to pay on most stuff which is something that I've definitely seen as an asset for me, being able to pretty much price anything out uh, on the top, don't even have to research it or anything. But then uh, on stuff that I don't know as much about other stuff, like different brands and things like that, I'll usually, when it's in bulk, for example, I'll usually price that into the total and just add it to the cost of the other ones. But in general, if it's something I don't know and I'm still getting bulk from them, I'll just toss them like, 10 15 20 on it and usually they'll end up taking it if, if we both know it's not something of value and thankfully i also have the the business side model of selling to uh different different other suppliers that are looking for that type of stuff so i'll be able to at least cover costs with it and sell to them in bulk for that 10 or 20 which isn't very high value not making a lot of money on it but i know that i can at least if i can pay under 20 i can always sell it for 20. Are you primarily B to B then B to C combination, pretty even combination of both, would you say? I like selling to other businesses, obviously, because they'll buy in bulk just like I do. And if I can make decent profit on it, I will. That's something I added this year. But B to C is obviously where I make more money because it's the end consumer. That's the person that would pay the most out of anybody. Any of these B to B, they, they have to sell for a profit too. So I understand where they're coming from when they come with their prices. Usually it's a lot of the time when I try and work with these these big businesses as well, they're trying to offer exactly what I pay, which I can completely understand. But when I get it for lower, then I'm able to make it happen. But B2C is always the, that's the best method for me. That's where I make the most and can actually build relationships and start that network effect of if I can build out such a customer relationship that they would feel the need to tell their friends. And that would be the ideal situation for me. We talked a little bit about before the episode started, uh, just briefly on kind of the importance of knowing the space as well. And we kind of got into this when we talked about competition, the idea that you might have some competition coming up, you see some someone new trying to do it. But at the end of the day, you know that you have a decade of experience underneath your belt now, and you're confident in your own abilities in that. How important is, I guess, knowing the space? And then can you speak to some of the lessons that you have learned so far that 
specific things as far as like, okay, I'm not worried about this guy because I know this and he doesn't, right? He hasn't learned this lesson yet. And I know how to work my way around this issue. Any, any things like that that come to your mind of like lessons kind of you've primarily learned the biggest yeah. ones along the way? So knowing the space is huge for me. I see a lot of people, as I've mentioned before, that come in the space and think it's just going to be so simple as buying for low and selling for higher. But to understand and have sold the same shoe a hundred times over now, so and certain models, I understand exactly what stuff actually goes for, exactly how long it's going to take me. For the most part, obviously, as I sell new and pre-owned, I don't know the exact timeline on everything, but I do have a good general sense now. So being able to go into any deal or negotiation with that knowledge in the back of my head is it's vital for it. And building upon that, like a lesson that I've learned is that I used to have, as we mentioned before, like a scarcity mindset behind like, oh, I gotta, I gotta be able to get these deals and I'll do anything to make it happen. And that really caved in for me and caused me to make bad deals in the past. But I've realized now that there's just so much out there. There's so many people looking for shoes. It's such a growing industry that I'm able to step away from a lot of deals that I shouldn't make and make more rational decisions. Whereas a person that's just getting into it is kind of going to fall into it and like, oh, this seems like a good deal. Let me just go ahead and do this and see if I can make it work. But as you get more into it, you realize that there's just so many people out there that want to sell and buy. So you don't have to force anything, understanding that if this doesn't work out, it's not going to really kill my business. But if if I end up going through with this, it could be a big negative effect. So understanding the like the biggest positive gain of, of doing something or going through on a deal and then realizing it's when it's time to step away and not try and force anything because it's it's all out there and you can find it again. Speaking to that, the, the patience of the business, right? I think that's extremely important and something that's definitely hard for beginning entrepreneurs, especially to kind of wrap their head around that. Like, I don't have to make this deal. I, I can, I, I like the way you put it too, of if I, if I don't make this deal, it's not going to kill me. Right. But if I do make this deal and it's not good because I'm in over my head a little bit or whatever the case may be, then it could have an extremely large negative effect. So I think that's uh, definitely wise words right there. And you touched on another thing that I'm a quick question. I'm just curious on the, mm -hmm. the shelf life kind of uh, how long are you on average? Would you say, I know you mentioned it, it varies, but on average, how long are you holding on to um, a pair of shoes before you're able to flip them again? Is that something you track? It is. Uh, it's there's so much inventory now that it's tough to kind of keep up with that. But I do know that there's stuff that has been sitting for me for like over 12 months. And that's something I, I work on just finding a way to liquidate at that point. I've always had the mindset before of like, oh, I'll just hold on to it and wait till it goes up. But now I've realized this year as I continue to uh, up the volume scale that it's just really not smart to have just that much capital sitting when I can keep it moving. So I've adopted a... Uh, a slower or excuse me, a, a smaller margin, higher volume model this year, which has helped me in the space because people aren't as willing to spend as they were in the 2020 pandemic days when everyone had their stimulus checks and things like that. It's a whole different market than it was just a couple of years ago. So as I've been able to do that, um, on average, I'm holding on to stuff like 
ideally under two weeks, but I'd say on average, it's about a month just because some stuff sits for a little while, especially the brand new, because it's such a market set in place. Whereas pre-owned, I could say it's worth 250. Another person could think it's worth 350. And that way you can uh, easily make that sale because they think they're getting a good deal. Whereas the, the brand new, if it's worth 200, chances are I'm probably going to list it at like 180 to 200. And it'll just take as long as it takes to sell based on the market demand. It's a lot more fluid through there, whereas pre-owned can be all over the place. Yeah, gotcha. That's interesting. You you brought up the uh, the concept that you've shifted to kind of a lower margin, higher volume approach uh, this year. And you, you adapted, rightfully so, due to the market shifts, demand shifts that you were seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of speak to the importance of the adaptability of a business owner and especially a founder um, in any in any space they're in and kind of just how important that's been for you over the past few years with the massively changing landscape as well, Tyler? Yeah, that's one of the biggest aspects of the business that I think I excel in. I think every year I've changed, not changed the business model, but at least adapted it to what needs to happen. As I mentioned before, like this year, I added on bulk sellers and bulk buyers, and now I buy a lot heavier. I've bought different sizes, things I wouldn't buy before. And also I've lowered the prices. I started looking back in my memories just last last year because I have like the memories like this day of last year on your insights and things like that on Instagram. And some of the prices I was putting up, now they were selling, but this year, if I were to put those prices up, it would take a long time for these things to sell. So I've definitely realized that a change in a shoe that I would usually have listed for 150 might be like 110 or 120 now. But that also comes with the increased confidence and ability in myself, knowing that I can go out and find more pairs. Whereas before I thought, oh, I'll hold on to it to get the most amount and like go with a a slow dime over a fast nickel and like less work and more money, right? But as I've realized is that as that shoe continues to sit, even though I might make that extra or 20, 20 or $30, I could have flipped the same shoe over more t- three or four more times and made that extra 20, 20, and 20. Whereas I'm able to source these things so consistently now that it just makes more sense to give people better prices, better deals. And that way I can also increase my customer base while making more money. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That makes sense. Is this something that did you have a mentor for this starting out at all? Anyone who's kind of been pivotal in helping you uh, navigate this space to start out? Or has it just totally been kind of learning from experience and just grinding and getting better and better at it each year? For me, there wasn't really anybody I had a direct mentorship to. Now, I always saw people that had their own sneaker shops and things like that. And when I used to go to these trade shows pretty much every month, I would see all these people with thousands and thousands of pairs. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like I can, I can do that one day outside of just the acceptance and belief that my, like my parents were definitely huge in like telling me to go all in on it. So I definitely appreciate them for that, but I never really had anybody that was like telling me what to do or how to figure it out. And I kind of am grateful for that because it was able to teach me more lessons and have more losses that actually hurt. Whereas if I would have avoided them, it might've been better for me in the business, but now having to go through them and like 
I'm, I feel like I'm ahead now having to, to gone through so many different pitfalls and issues all the way on the upfront. Now I'm able to handle so much more at the age I'm at now. So I wouldn't say I had anybody that was really influential for me, but rather just seeing inspirations around and then just figuring out as myself, I didn't really consider it to be a business until I was starting to buy sizes that weren't my own or anything and like not collecting anymore, but rather just buying to go out and sell. So just figuring it out along the way, pretty much by myself was, I, I kind of consider it an advantage. Definitely. Definitely. And that's a great mindset and perspective to have around it, right? Using it to your advantage any way you can. And, and that's something I want to get into is the mindset uh, here. And in, in, But I have one more question for you before that. Mm -hmm. The negotiation, the sales, the marketing, that's obviously a huge aspect of this business that you're running. Um, beyond just the, you know, establishing strong relationships with customers and, and trying to increase that retention rate that you obviously said was low to begin with and, and maybe still is because it's difficult to retain them. They look for the best deals. Are there any aspects or tips uh, uh, surrounding the topic of like negotiation and, and the sales approach to it that you have um, developed over time, learned that are more effective, maybe mistakes that you were making originally with it that you realized this is not the right approach to take. Um, I know you talked about adding in like little add-ins with the purchase to try and make it unique, but as far as like the negotiation of it actually goes, anything with that as at all? Yeah, a couple of things with that. That's something that I love reading about and, and figuring more out and tips along the line. So some of the biggest ones that I've I've learned a lot, but only applied a few. Um, one of the biggest ones purchase wise is, as I mentioned before, knowing like when to step away from the deal, but the man with the most options is the one that wins the negotiation all the time. So if I go into something knowing I need to purchase it or I need to sell it, I'm obviously not very high leverage in that situation. Whereas when I'm coming into somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm moving tomorrow. And this has happened before. I had it just last week. The guy was like, I'm literally like moving out like rents due and I don't have it. So I'm, I'm just selling all these to get rid of it. Not that I want to take advantage of it, but like I'm in the driver's seat in that, in that negotiation. I know that I don't have to purchase these. I'm going to be perfectly fine without them, but he needs to get rid of these. Like he can't, he can't take them with him tomorrow. So I'm, I'm able to use that and still pay fairly, of course, but go ahead and, and make sure that I get the best deal and not force anything there. And then on the, on the selling side, I've realized that people don't want to be sold to, obviously, if I were to come to you and like, Hey, buy these shoes, you need them. They're, they look good on you. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. I'm here as an assistant helper buyer. All I'm, all I try and do is here's what I have. If you're interested, just let me know any questions. I'm here to work with you, answer any questions, figure out what you're looking for specifically. If you act as an assistant, that has a sole purpose of just trying to help people out and add value to their lives instead of let me find ways to make money off of you. The whole mindset shift, people feel a lot more comfortable working with you and they're end up, they end up be willing to pay more just because they feel like there's a value add of me helping them along the process instead of just like, oh, you should definitely buy these or go with these. I want to jump back a little bit to what you brought up in that example of the, the guy who was moving and needed to sell them, right? Mm -hmm. That's an example of a time where you mentioned you still would give them a fair price. 
you know, of course you want to give them, you want to get the best deal you can, but you still hold to your, you know, your, your own morals and values that you don't just want to lowball them completely. Right. Right. Is that something that was, I asked this from in the most genuine way, like, is that something that was difficult? Like you go into that deal or, or was it just, you, you stood firm in, in your morals and your values, right? Because you could probably go into that deal and be like, I'm going to offer them way less than what it's actually worth. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that could be tempting for people in business because you do understand the fact that, okay, you know, I, I have the high ground in this situation to use a star Wars quote there. Um, is that something that was challenging for you at all to kind of stand firm in your values and your beliefs in that regard or, or not so much Tyler? Definitely has shifted. Uh, in the beginning, I was a lot more immature and was like always in it for the short term money. Like, oh yeah, if, if I have the, the high ground here, I'm, I'm definitely going to take full advantage and make sure I make as much as possible. But you have to see every business transaction as a relationship that can, that can blossom in the future as well. If I'm willing to pay fairly and make sure that he's getting enough on this deal, he has that much more potential to come back to me when he needs to sell some more stuff to buy stuff off me. I've had people sell me stuff and then end up buying the same pairs back when they actually have the money. Cause a lot of the times when people are getting rid of stuff that they like, like their shoes, it's probably to pay something off or cause they're in a, a crunch or something along the lines of that. So I've had people come back to me and, and end up paying more, giving me a profit because they felt that I was fair on the front end. And also if I'm paying well enough, if like, if let's say you had a couple of shoes that you were looking to sell, maybe you wanted two or $300 and I go through it and offer you 400. How much more inclined would you be to tell your other buddies like, Hey, this guy, he, he just bought all my shoes and he paid me more than I thought he would. Like that one deal, maybe I pay an extra 50 or a hundred dollars or whatever it might be. And I know I'm still making my, my genuine profit. Now I've just gained five or 10 extra customers that you've told your friends about. And that's just extra money on top that I can reap the benefits for. So it's really all about like seeing the long term behind it and not just like not just going all short term. How much can I make today? I think that's a brilliant, brilliant approach. People always think of business kind of in this this greedy um, short term. I'm, people who aren't necessarily in business, I mean, mm -hmm. might see it as this greedy kind of short term lens like, oh, you're going to you're going to lowball this guy or like, why wouldn't you in that case? Of course you're going to do that, you know, but seeing it through that long-term lens that you have of like, you know, a, it's not the morally right thing to do, but then B, if I don't do that, like he's more likely to recommend, he's more likely to come back himself. Like you, all those things you touched on are just extremely important as far as potentially increasing that customer retention rate, that lifetime value of a customer, right? Cause that's kind of a, I don't know if I was newer. I don't know the history well enough to say it's a newer concept, but I feel like that was something that back in the day, maybe that was more focused on the short-term lens because they maybe had to be. Um, whereas now it, it, the research is digging in more and more to like the actual lifetime value of customers. How can we increase that over a long-term perspective as opposed to like just this quarter's results or just this month's results? Mm -hmm. So I think that's extremely an extremely smart way to look at it. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing we were going to talk about was kind of just the psychology of people. We talked about it a little bit on, on as the, through the sales lens of it, right? They don't want to be sold to, you want to kind of help guide them along, assist them with the process, show them that value proposition there, even right up front, just the way the relationship is to begin with, and then also potentially do business with them. Um, are there any other aspects around psychology before we kind of move on here 
that you have found to be important within the, the business space that you're in? Yeah, any deal that you make with people, they always want to feel like they're better off after they've made the deal than before. So to understand that you have to make sure that they're they're in the right headspace and that they're not leaving a negotiation or a deal feeling like they just got played or something like that is huge. And that may not even necessarily come down to price, but more to figuring out what their incentives are. And with that, just overall, I would say one of my best abilities uh, that I've built up over these last couple of years is like that active listening, making sure to talk less and, and hear them out more and build that empathy with them to understand like, all right, what's going on? What's the situation? Cause like I mentioned before, usually when you're selling your favorite shoes, you're not in the best headspace. Like, oh man, I got to get rid of these, but I really like them. Like I understand it's an emotional thing for a lot of people as well as purchasing things. They're like, wow, this is four or $500. Like that's a big, that's a big purchase for just some, some sneakers. So I like to make sure, and it's tough to do over the phone or on Instagram, direct messages, things like that. But to really get behind the motives, not to take advantage of them, but just to understand where their head's at and see what their motives are, what's going on with them, why they're selling, why they're buying, and then figure out what I can do to best help them in this situation and then move from there and, and continue to, to listen to their, their issues and how they want to solve them. All of that stuff is so, so important. And the fact you have a grasp on it, you know, at this young of an age is speaking from a, you know, a peer, obviously I'm not a, I'm not a, a mentor to you someone who's ahead of you, but it, it's, it's extremely, it's only going to be beneficial going forward. The fact that you understand the report importance of those relationships. Um, just like you said, the psychology of people, right. Understanding how they think not, not to take advantage of them, but to just frankly better understand the situation. And you talk about active listening too. That's one of the reasons I literally started this podcast is because I was like, okay, I know I can talk. Like I'm, pretty good at just not shutting up and when I'm talking to people about something, especially if I really like it, right? Who isn't good at that, you know? Mm. And uh, I was like, but listening, it just seems to be this recurring theme of like everyone who's wealthy or like successful seems to say that listening is extremely important. It's more important than talking, get in a room where you're the dumbest person. You can learn from five different people, right? That, and then just soak it in. So the importance of that, I mean, that's literally one of the reasons I started this podcast is to learn from people who are doing better than me. Like, I was just like, why, why would I not do that? You know, it seems, seems smart. And I gotta, I gotta become more well-rounded and iron out that skill. I maybe have the speaking portion down, but the listening, I, I need to get better asking good questions too. Right. I'm sure that comes into uh, sales and the relationship with the customers, like understanding which questions to ask when, you know, and how to phrase them. All that stuff is so extremely important. And before we get into, oh, actually, no, let's wait with that. Um, mindset. That's another thing we talked about. Kind of now I want to talk about life as opposed to just the business realm through the lens of, of everything. How has, what are some specific um, importance, important things that you place on mindset, important uh, aspects of mindset that you um take with you in, in both business, but then also in day-to-day -day life, you like to stand firm by, uh, I know you're big into running. I want to touch on that kind of the discipline, the, the mindset around that and why you maybe got into that and lifting as a whole kind of just the floor is yours, Tyler, or just discuss your thoughts on, on mindset as a whole. Yeah. So 
One of the biggest things that I've taken away from the business is that it's not just up and to the right all the time, that there's peaks and troughs pretty much every single day. And I've seen that in the business and then applied it to my life. Like there's going to be good days and bad days, but you know that you can't have the good without the bad and vice versa. So to understand like, okay, today wasn't good. Here's what didn't work. And any bad day is just an opportunity to figure out what didn't work so that you can move on and become more optimized. So like in business, I've had months where I've gone way high and then months that are much lower in revenue and profits and things like that. But instead of looking at it like, man, I failed this month, it's more of like, okay, what didn't work? It's almost better to have those things that don't work so that you're able to become that much better and figure out all the problems that could arise in the future so that you can avoid them in the past. And another thing on the the high days, everything can feel like it's going right. You, you got the job, you did all the things, you, you did all your work. And the biggest thing with that is also just not not falling into it and not seeing like, okay, everything worked, business as usual. Like you have to be able to analyze what is working so that you can build upon that and not just get too blindsided like, thinking that like get ego, like, oh yeah, I'm the best. I'm figuring it all out. It's all making sense because if you don't take account of like what's actually working, the next month may just be another bad month and you'll feel completely defeated because you're like, what happened? How did, why did I fall off? So to know that there's days that are going to be up and down and be able to take them both and understand them and take time each day to figure out what worked and what didn't just makes you that much better. So going along the lines of that one of the biggest goals for me in the overall in life is just to to reach full potential so with that you have to you have to take account every day of figuring out what's working and what's not and continue to get that one percent better each day which is why i got into over the last couple of years as i'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs do as well as you're trying to optimize a business you want to optimize your life as well so I'm trying to build out becoming the most fit that I can and doing running, lifting as much as I can, doing crazy challenges, just putting myself out there, doing the hard things, because as you continue to do these hard things in life, everything else becomes easier. You can run a marathon and tell yourself to do it, get the mental fortitude to go out and do it, regardless of if you're prepared or not. Just think how easy it would become to go run three miles the next day everything else becomes that much easier when you set yourself up for such a high baseline of what you think is possible and what you know you can achieve. You brought up 1% better every day. And I absolutely love that because I have a group chat with two of my closest friends um, that is literally called 1% better every day <laughs> where we talk about business and just also just life in general. So yeah. that uh, I love that. I love that concept of, Another one I love, and you're kind of speaking to it here, is uh, Matthew McConaughey talks about the concept of his hero. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard this one. Um, yeah. For those who haven't, it's the idea of, well, someone asked him, who's your hero, right? And he's like, well, let me think about that. And the guy comes back two weeks later and says, who's your hero? And he goes, you know, it's me in, you know, five years or how whatever period of time you want to look at it. It's me in five years. So five years later, guy comes back and he looks at him, he goes, you know, are you your hero? And he's like, not even close. The guy's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, my hero's five years out still. And it, my hero is always five years out. I'm always trying to improve and always get better. And that falling in love with that process 
of the, you know, whether it's self-improvement or business improvement, getting better in whatever area of your life you're focusing on, like fall in love with that process. And then you can't fail, you know, unless you give up. Right. But if you, if you have a tangible, this is where I think smart goals are kind of interesting, right? Because they came onto the lens and I still think they're effective, but they came onto the lens of, of kind of like goal setting has shifted. I should say from the idea of, I want to be able to do X number of whatever, the specific thing, as opposed to, I want to work every single day to get better at that thing. And then the results will come. And if they don't, I'm still happy with it because I put in the work and having right. that, like the growth mindset, but also the, the process goal setting, as opposed to the tangible outcome goal setting that I think mm -hmm. has shifted. Um, and, and rightfully so, because I think it's, it's the right way to look at it from the, the psychology of humans perspective, um, you know, being able to weather those, those lows and also understand and still try and learn from, and not just expect the, the highs all the time. Right. Because like you said, right. you can't have the highs without the lows, you know, that's, that's the concept of life. Right. I have yeah. to ask you, you got big into running. Were you always big into running? Uh, is that something that was more recent? Uh, did did David Goggins play a role in that at all? Or uh, I have to ask you about some of that too. Yeah, I wish I could show you. I got a big Goggins poster right behind me as well. Um, I was not into running initially. I had been, uh, I got into the self-improvement space. I'd say senior year of high school, started hitting the gym, having no idea what I was doing. I can remember the first time I was just like a Planet Fitness guy doing like just bicep day and the, the classic bro split, things like that. So I've been lifting for about four years now, and I've optimized that a lot, figured out a lot of the tips and tricks and what's effective, what's not. But I realized that I wasn't, it's not that I was falling out of love with it, but I, it was becoming too much of a routine and I wasn't pushing myself enough, even though I was going hard in the gym. I just felt like I was capped upon, like it was only teaching me so much at that point, not even physically, obviously I was in good shape, but also just not allowing me to grow in the way that I wanted to. So I have a high school friend, his name's Wyatt. We are two of the only ones that are like kind of into that, the crazy stuff, pushing ourselves to the limit. So I'm, I'm very thankful for him. And all of a sudden in January of this year, he's like, all right, let's go run a half marathon. And I had probably run seven miles at the most. And we went out there and did it and we didn't do it that fast, but we did it. And it kind of just opened up, it broke that limiting belief, like, wow, I can go out and do things that I didn't think were possible. And obviously that can relate to business and things like that as well. The next month we did uh, a full marathon without any training, which people were like, how'd you do that? And it's like, it's all, it all comes down to the mindset of like making it an opportunity, something to see if, how far you can push yourself. And then from there I did uh, another Ironman the next month. And then Moving on from that, I took a break and went back into the gym over the summer. And now uh, for the past six weeks, I've just created a challenge for myself to run every day for a year. So just finding ways to push yourself out there. And as I've continued to start running, I've just realized like, wow, this is something I, I really enjoy. And it's it's really hard. And I think that's why I enjoy it, because it, in all honesty, it's it still sucks. It's hard. <laughs> so going out there and doing the hard things and then finishing it like whether that's working on something with focused work for a couple hours or going out there and doing something you don't want to do, the feeling you get afterwards is better than the feeling of achievement because you're knowing that you're doing something that's bettering you and whether like getting detached from the outcome, whether you're doing well in it or not, 
you know that you're putting yourself out there and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations because feeling comfortable is actually pretty uncomfortable to me. I'm like, I can't be stuck in the same spot. I got to be improving. So figuring out ways to just go out there and make yourself feel uncomfortable in the right way, obviously going to do the right things and pushing yourself to the limit to see what, what your full potential really could look like. I've always loved training from the side of um, peak performance. For me, it was always for, for sports, for athletics in particular in college baseball. Um, it was, I was always training on that like top end peak performance level, which is totally different from what you're talking about, because in that space, it's all about, you know, I might do a set, I might do reps, sets of one, one repetition or, or two, right? Peak power output then rest for eight minutes, you know, something like that. Like quite literally I had days over the summers where I would do 10 sets of one on trap bar deadlift and I'd mm. wait and it would take me two hours because I'd wait eight minutes in between to just optimize it and get that rep done in a millisecond as fast to the millisecond as I could. Cause that was what needed to be done for, for what mm. I was training for. And there's something to be said now that I'm out of athletics and, you know, competitive athletics in that way where I'm not training for that necessarily peak optimization. Now I'm training for life, you know, and that the concept of the endurance, like that's why running, I think is, is so, um, it's highly regarded by many people in the space, I think as, as something that's just extremely effective for that mental toughness, that mental fortitude, that discipline, because mm -hmm. like as, as much as I might be lifting a heavy weight, it's not doing one rep of that and resting for eight minutes, you're always fresh. Like that's the point of how you're training it better. You're not gassed and training while you're tired, right? You're not exhausted. So mentally it's not nearly so physically it's a lot of weight, but mentally it's not nearly as difficult to do that. So I think there's, it's so important you bring that up because it's such a, it's the idea of endurance training. It's something I need to get into more. And I've been thinking about more and more recently, just purely from not even physical, but from the mental fortitude side of things that you're talking about, it's so important. And Goggins is one of those people that I think has kind of really emulated that. Some people probably think he's crazy, right? But he, guess what? He doesn't care what they, what they think at all, or probably honestly what you or I care uh, at, at this point either. And yeah. one thing I have to ask you, Tyler, how have you, have you seen that play an extremely beneficial role? The idea of being physically fit, uh, physically, you know, not more than just able, right. But like strong, able-bodied fast, like, uh, in having good endurance, how, how important of a role do you think that personally has played for you in business? And, and do you think that's important for kind of everyone to have that, that certain kind of baseline foundation? I don't even think of it as an advantage anymore. I see it really as a necessity for me. I figured out that any day I'm not in movement is, is a day not wasted, but a day that I'm such low energy, being able to go out and do these things every day and not miss any days puts me at such a higher, higher level of consciousness and energy throughout the day, even though it is taxing on your body. It's like, I feel so much better and so much more able to get stuff done overall, knowing that I can complete it. And then another big aspect of it for me is, uh, I used to struggle with like, um, the, the imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough, like lower self-confidence, even though I'm doing things like I wasn't really extroverted, but being able to put yourself out there in those uncomfortable situations 
has extremely uh, affected my self-confidence within myself. And because I know that like I can go out there and, and do all these hard things. So I'm able to go out and pretty much put myself to the test in, in any regard and, and hold myself to such a high standard and have that, that high self-confidence in myself, not because I'm cocky or, or arrogant, but more because I know what I'm capable of. And I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've put in. And I know that that work will, uh, affect me in the future and, and be able to keep me in line as long as I stay consistent with it. Bridging the gap back here between the personal development mindset side of things, and then also business. They intertwine a lot, of course, but books wise, are there, I know you mentioned that's something that you used to never be into is reading. And I think the schools honestly beat the love for reading out of a lot of people because when you're required to read something like that's talk about basic human psychology. I, I talk about this a lot on multiple episodes, right? But the concept of if you want to do something good for a family member, right? You want to surprise them, do something that will make them happy. And then I always use the example of shoveling snow for your dad, right? If you want to do that before he gets home, you want to surprise him. and then right when you're about to do it and surprise him, he gets home in the early. And the first thing he asks you is, Hey, can you shovel the sidewalk? Now you immediately don't want to do it because now you're fulfilling an order as opposed to surprising someone and, and reaping the benefits personally of seeing them feel happier and, and, and proud of what you did. So relating that back to what I was saying here with reading, when they make you read things that you're maybe not interested in, but even if you were interested in, it, in most cases, if they assigned it to you, and gave you a deadline, then you wouldn't want to do it as much as you would otherwise. So the fact that you're getting back into reading now, I think is, is uh, common for people, I guess, in a way that they're, they, it gets beat out of them, but then also it's important that you get back into it. Cause there's so many lessons to be learned from, you know, the brightest minds that are writing about depending on what you're reading, obviously, but some people read for enjoyment and that's fine too. I'm guessing yours is well, I don't know exactly. Are you reading more business related books, personal development related books? What are kind of some of the most influential ones that you've read so far, Tyler? I'm half and half in business and uh, self-development. And I like to find the ones that have both. Uh, some of the ones I'm reading currently, I'm reading uh, Donald Trump's Art of the Deal for like aspects of negotiation and, and mindset. It's cool to see whether you like him or not. He He did his thing. So I've been reading that one. And then uh, Your Next Five Moves with Patrick Bet David has been a really good one to figure out how to play a game or how to play life as a game like it is in chess. Think five moves forward instead of being so short-minded. So things along the lines of business really get me excited. I, I find pleasure in that and I almost consider it um, like a, a recreation for me just to read, just to learn about these things through other people. Outside of that, um, some other recommendations I have. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Ryan Holiday fan. He uh, he does The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy. I've read both of those. Very solid. And then, uh, I mean, overall, there's just there's so many good ones out there. Obviously, I've read Goggins books and things along the line of that. But finding the books that have the ability to change your mindset, like something like The Power of the Subconscious Mind is huge for me having those shifts and then also being able to take active notes on it. Because I feel like if you're not taking notes and actually understanding the concepts and looking back on it, it pretty much is just recreation because you're most likely going to forget everything, uh, maybe apply a couple. But 
trying to really focus in and, and make sure I'm, I'm taking notes and actually utilizing the information instead of just thinking I know everything now because I'm reading all these books is uh, that's a huge shift for me that I've, I've focused on this year. But it's regardless of if I'm learning a lot or not, I, I've pretty much fallen in love with the, the reading aspect of it. I just love being like a, a lifelong learner and understanding through other people their problems, their issues that they've solved. And it helps streamline the process for you, even though you might be in a different industry. I like that you brought up Ryan Holiday. I just listened to his podcast. Uh, he was on Jocko. He was on Jocko's podcast, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, a couple might've been right around a month ago. Um, that was a good episode. I'd recommend it. But John Costello uh, was a guest on episode 17 and he brought up something I really liked too. And I'm curious your perspective on this. And for you, it kind of worked naturally. You'll, I think you'll get what I mean. Um, he brought up the concept of not reading so much right away that you're thinking that you're doing something by reading, right? He's like, you have to read while you're growing your business or while you're working on whatever it is you're working toward so that then you can apply those lessons, right? Because they're like these people, they'll, it'll be a brilliant book and they'll talk about these lessons, right? But if you're only seeing them through the lens of like what that person's saying and you're not able to, like you talked about taking notes, you're not able to actually relate it back to your situation and figure out how exactly it applies to you personally. He's like, then you're not taking full advantage of it either. And like you said, it's kind of just for recreation. Or maybe a lot of people maybe read thinking they're accomplishing something as opposed to actually going out and doing it and then reading or reading and then applying what they just learned to what they are. It is they're doing. Would you agree with that uh, anyway, Tyler? Yeah, one of my favorite books. I can't even remember which one it was, but I I think it was one of the earlier ones that I read. But I've applied it to other books. Is oh, I, I remember now. It was a uh, Profit First. I don't know the author, but it's it's in my room now. He had a a rule for every chapter. He's like, all right, stop reading here and actually go apply what you just learned exactly because it was very specific on the aspect of making sure to pay yourself and pay your people correctly and, and running a business. So it was like, stop just recreationally reading here every time on the chapter at the end. He's like, stop here, go apply it and come back once you're done. So I've, I've really focused on that because I've realized in podcasts as well, when I'm listening to those, I really enjoy a lot of different types of podcasts. If I'm 30, 45 minutes in and I'm just like listening to it, listening to it, like I'm not, I'm not moving, I'm not moving the needle, I'm not getting things done. So I like to take little aspects of time, like maybe just read a half a chapter or a chapter, and then just be thinking about that all day, focused in on one thing I can change, like, a, like we mentioned before, the, the 1% better, because if you get, if you get into a book, whereas a lot of people like reading, like, oh, yeah, I'll just sit down and read a whole book. Like there could be 30, 50, 100 like super specific tips that are going to go right over your head. Whereas if you kind of take it and that's why I kind of read multiple books at the same time, just grabbing things here and there and coming back to it when I need that, that jolt of a different, different perspective. I think it's more important to go out and, and act on it. That's one thing that I, I struggled with in the past is I felt like I knew more than I did. And now I'm trying to focus on action before reaction and, and figuring out like, okay, where did I go wrong? You'll learn more in, in one sales call than you will with a thousand sales books. So figuring out ways that I can continue to learn, but not get so into it that I'm, I'm not even applying anything, just taking 
information and knowing all of it, but not having anything to show for it. Because without that, there's no, there's no point outside of just like saying, you know, it, which is nothing. You hit the nail on the head, Tyler. How could people find you on Instagram, uh, eBay, any, any, any place that might benefit you or can they connect with uh, what you're doing with, with, uh, Atlanta sneaks? So it's Atlanta.sneaks on Instagram. I have the page back there. That's me. Uh, that's my main channel. Definitely come check me out. And then Tyler Barima on Instagram as well. If you're looking for motivation or things along the lines or seeing the runs, I always post the runs to kind of inspire people and show what's really possible out there and build that mindset up, which has been really fun. Outside of that, if you're looking for any types of sneakers or just want to check out the page, it would definitely be Instagram or the eBay page that I'm sure you can link as well. It's just the same thing, Atlanta Sneaks. But uh, definitely check it out and give me some tips. If you see anything you would you would want to improve, I'm always open to uh, some positive feedback and, and can definitely make everything happen. So definitely. Cool. Cool, man. Well, it was great having you on. I love the conversation. I uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed it.